Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. So today we are going to continue our sermon series uh, on surrender, not unironically. Uh, this week we move into a week called Surrender Your Work. And so let's define work really quick. As we, as we talk about this, so we've talked about surrendering uh, your, your will, whose agenda is it, your why, like why do I exist, what's my purpose here, and your worship, what do I do with my days, what do I worship, how do I worship. Uh, today, surrender your work, and, and so defining work, because everybody finds an easy way to opt out of these things if we're not careful, your work is just the primary pursuit of your day. If your average day, take your average Tuesday, what are you doing on your average Tuesday, that's your work. Uh, so if you're a student in here, your work is being a student. If you're um, searching for work, your work is searching for work. If you're a stay-at-home parent, or you're retired, or you're in the midst of a nine-to-five, whatever it is, that is your work. And so as we talk about your work, that is how you're going to hold that and go, okay, so I'm surrendering that. What we need to know and acknowledge right out of the gate is that work is essential. Uh, work is essential. You were designed for it. Uh, the scripture says you were made in the image of the creator God, the creator God who uh, designed and built the earth, the world, who breathed life into being and then rested on the seventh day, not because he needed rest, but maybe to model for us that there's a balance. And then work, we would also have to acknowledge, uh, even as it is essential, we would also acknowledge that work can be frustrating toil. Even when you love your job, it can still be a burden. This is why people retire, right? You work and then you rest, right? There's that sort of construct God has created. You work and you work and you work and then you rest. Work is toil, even good work. And so what we're going to do is look into how we got here. How did we get to this place with work? Then we're going to go on to two common responses to work. When we think of our work, the, the labor of our day, what we're after for the day, what are the two most common responses in the way we get it wrong? And then third, we're going to close. We're going to close on God's design for your work. So how we got here. Let's go back to the beginning. This requires us to go all the way to the beginning um, essentially what we're looking at when we open up the Bible is we see that God has created, God has done the good work, and there's Adam and Eve, and they're in the garden, and then a third character shows up. There's three characters. There's Adam, Eve, and then the serpent shows up, right? So God is going to um, just be absent for a minute. He's going to just, I'll just be back, guys. And he says, don't eat of the, the fruit of the tree of knowledge, of good and evil. And the serpent says, yeah, no, no big deal. You can just, just take a bite. It's fine. It'll be fine. And so Adam and Eve, the serpent, what happens she takes a bite, Adam takes a bite, they've taken of the tree, and things start spiraling. So let's uh, pick it up in Genesis 3, verse 14. God comes back, finds out that they've done the one thing he asked them not to do. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and wild animals. You'll crawl on your belly, you'll eat dust the rest of the days of your life, and I will put enmity between you and, your, and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. That's not relevant to where we're going, but I don't like snakes, so I just wanted to read that. Um, now, to the woman, he said, I'll make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. 
And Adam, to Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life, and it will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will eat the plants of the field, and by the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. So, the, the result of the first act of rebellion in human history, the result of sin and rebellion against God, is what? Brokenness and sin and rebellion lead to thorns and thistles and sweat and toil. To dust you shall return. We, we read through Ecclesiastes together not so many months ago, and what, what did we see from the book of Ecclesiastes? The wisdom from King Solomon was what? I could work all the days of my life, and at the end of the day, what do I have to show for it? And he said, it's vanity and it's vapor. All of my work, of all of my toil, of all of my days, what did it lead to? Vapor. And so we acknowledge, again, looking at this, that work is hard, work is toil, and there's two common responses to when we, in, when we interact with the curse upon our labor for our days. There's two ways we look at it. The first one is we give work, in response, we give work way too much meaning. It's the first response. We give work too much meaning. Plainly said, this is idolatry. It's the idolatry of work. Work, whatever, however you're defining that, right? We said there's different ways to define that for you depending on your season. Work will be the thing that gives my life meaning. Work will be my primary purpose and pursuit. Work will be my chief passion, or my satisfaction and fulfillment will rest upon my work or the product of my work, be it my salary or my GPA or even my recreation. Like, I'm not diminishing the importance of work either. This is not a like, hey, so surrender your work so like everybody quits and we build a commune and that'll be cool. That's not how that works. Work is important. We're also not diminishing the temptation that is involved in work. It's super tricky because it's so much of your life. You spend so many of your waking hours pursuing this thing that is sort of central to um, putting food on the table. It's central to reaching the next level of your journey. But the, the danger is that we become our work. I see this in pastors a lot. So to make this, uh, make this about me and not, I'm not, I'm not, not accusing you, pastors often identify with their work to an unhealthy level. Most jobs where you have a title that someone can call you that thing instead of your name, this can be a little tricky. And so when people ask me, when I meet new people, and I say, what do you want us to call you? Is it pastor? Is it Pastor Kyle? Is it Kyle? I said, my name is Kyle. And, and if you call me pastor, I appreciate that. I take that as respect. I'm good with that. We're fine. But my name is Kyle. And my name is not, my identity is not my title or position in a church. I'm just God's child, happens to be this is my work context at the moment, but that's not my identity. But so many people I know and friends I know, they get kind of caught up in that, and they're, they're so enmeshed, it was a psychological term for like the blurring of boundaries between two people, we can become enmeshed in our, in our work life, in, in a place where there's no longer a, a boundary between who I am and what I do. And, and so I begin to associate and identify with who I am as what I do. They're, they're one and the same. And this becomes a, a problem. We give work too much meaning, and then what we do, if you give work too much meaning, what you're prone to do then is what? It's overwork. If it's the thing that has meaning in life, then I want to give all of my life to that thing that gives me meaning. Because to stop would mean we'd have to listen to the deafening silence from the lack of meaning anywhere else. 
This is a, it's a self-fulfilling behavior. If I over-index and I, over, I, I place too much importance on work, then what am I going to do? I'm just going to work a ton, which then cycles up the importance of that thing because I've neglected everything else in my life, and all of those other things now have no meaning because I haven't, you know, I haven't watered those plants, so they're all dead, and I just work and work and work, and I look back and I go, well, that's no fun. I guess I just have to keep doing this. And, and so the over-importance of work, the idolatry of work, creates overwork. And this is that enmeshment creation where I no longer see the difference between myself and my job, my position, my vocation. I am my job and my job is me. So of course my satisfaction and fulfillment is found in my work first because I am my work. And, and what we have is an issue of misplaced identity. It's, a, it's an identity placed in the wrong spot. The question we have to ask ourselves Maybe the way to diagnose yourself and go, hey, is this, is this true of me to some degree? If I could no longer do the thing I do today, would I still be me? If you no longer did the thing you, that you do, if you were no longer identified with the job that you do or the, the, the pursuit of your day, would you still be you or would there be some absence all of a sudden like, wait, well, who will even, how will people know who I am? The psalmist gives us wisdom on how to address this. The psalmist says in Psalm 127, it says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. So if you're grinding it out, the psalmist would say, the, the wisdom here is if you're just burning the candle at both ends, if you can't sleep because you're so fixated on the, the things of your day, that anxiety is really just vanity. He's saying that anxiety is related to vanity. There's something that's over-indexed in your life that you've over, pushed over-importance on this area of your life that, that the anxiety of my work day probably relates to I've put too much importance on my work. That unless the Lord builds the house, the house isn't going to get built. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not the savior. I'm not the creator. I'm not the king. And unless we can honestly say that and then put stuff to the side where it belongs, we will find ourselves in that sleepless anxiety, that sleepless toil of my, my job is my life and my life is my job. Second thing that is pretty dangerous is if you're enmeshed at, at work, if, you're, if your job and your identity are one and the same, there's a real danger that when your job changes or you lose your job, you lose yourself along the way. So we overcorrect. We overcorrect, and this is the one area. We overcorrect, and we're like, well, that's not going to be me. And we swing the pendulum as far over as we can to the other direction, and we get the second response. And the second response to work is we strip work of meaning. So instead of giving it too much meaning, we say, well, that's not going to be me. I'm not going to give it any meaning. I'm stripping work of all meaning. This is, I would call this reductionist denialism. So if we had idolatry of work, in this zone, we have idolatry of self. When we strip work of its true meaning, then we begun to uh, idolize ourselves to create an idol of self. Let me explain how. Work, in this scenario, in the stripped of meaning work, work only exists as a task to be leveraged for my needs and desires. That's all it's about. Work will only have meaning in what it offers me as a result of my labor. And so if I am simply going to work so as to leverage work to get the things I want, 
or if I'm simply in school a little bit longer so I can have the thing I need so I can do what I actually want to do, but I'm not placing any importance on the thing I'm in right now, then what we've done is we've started to leverage the work of our days for the idolization of self. You get the picture of someone just punching a clock mindlessly. Someone, you know someone, everybody knows someone, doesn't have to be you, could be you, doesn't have to be you, point at someone else. Everybody knows somebody who's just cashing them checks, right? Just hanging in. They're not really there for anything. They're not working hard. They're just there to get the check and keep moving. You see this in young people. Young people, we call them slackers. Oh, those slackers. Whippersnappers. Older people. Older people walking around wearing the golden handcuffs. Heard that term? Means I'm just still here because I can't afford not to be anymore. So I would quit. I'd do something else. I got calls from, from pastors post-COVID who were just burned out and done with it. And they would say things like, if I could do anything else, I would do something else. But I got I to feed the family and I don't really have a lot of skills, so here's, here I am. And you're like, that doesn't seem like you're honoring work at all. That's not the point. I, I've been this person before who has uh, stripped all work, uh, stripped all meaning out of work. I've, there was a season in my life I had graduated from college. I was about to go be a missionary in South Africa. I needed money to live in South Africa. And so I got a job. Um, let's, you ready? Let's play, let's play how old is the pastor. Okay. I got a job as a 411 operator. What? What is that? So you had these phones that had these wires that went into the wall. Um, and people would call, and they would, I would answer. And for whatever reason, don't ask me. I don't know. I did what they told me to do. Um, work had no meaning for me. I would go, and I, would, I was the answer, uh, the, the operator, the 411 operator for, I don't know what phone company it was. They didn't tell us. They just said, no, you're, you're a contractor. And it was for the, like, the greater Washington, D.C. region. And so people needed to find a Walgreens in, you know, some spot outside of Baltimore, and they would call me, and through a series of like weird computer databases, kind of pre-internet sort of stuff, and some maps, I would tell them how to get where they're going. Oh, yes, sir, I can find you at Walgreens, no problem. Just one moment while I place you on a brief hold. <laughs> okay, um, thank you so much. And it was like, you know, $46 for them to make this call. This is how the phone used to work. This is what we had before Google. So um, I invented Google is the lesson. I worked there for six months, and I literally was just there to make money. I was not there to honor anyone else. I was not there to uh, be a ministry to anybody. I was not there to love somebody. I was there to make as much money as they would give me so I could take it, put it in my pocket, and get on to the next thing. I was leveraging these people and this company for my personal gain. Now, my gain to go be a missionary, you'd be like, well, that's a good thing to do. Sure, that's fine. But it doesn't dismiss the idea that I had no, I stripped that place of all meaning. I leveraged them to the hilt. If they said, we're paying time and a half this weekend, we're really busy, I'd be like, I'm in. And if it was pretty slow one day and I only had a couple hours left and I was making normal pay, I was like, I'm out. Well, would you stay? Would you help us train? Would you be interested? No, I'm not interested in anything. I just want your money. And then I went and was a missionary. And I never thought about it again until I was looking at it this week. And I went, hey, that's me. I was the person who stripped work of all meaning, which was really just a way to glorify myself through somebody else's dollars. What we might associate with this is the sin of sloth. The seven deadly sins, sloth is one you've ever heard of sloth. When we think of sloth, we think of a sloth. Um, Laziness a little bit is what we think of. Carelessness. 
I want to offer to you that sloth isn't what we think it is. Um, Eugene Peterson helps us with this uh, in a quote. I'll put it on the screen. He says, sloth is most often evidenced actually in busyness, in frantic running around, trying to be everything to everyone, and then having no time to listen or pray, no time to become the person who is actually doing these things. We think of sloth as lazy, couch, potato chips, not doing anything. Peterson is actually opening us up to it can be that, sure, but it's actually more often, especially in our modern American society, it's, it's more often on the other end. And I love this because it addresses both of our problematic responses, over-meaning in work or under-meaning in work. Because we know the sloth of laziness, but this says it can apply to overwork as well. And this is important because uh, Dorothy Sayers, who in a book called Creed and Chaos, she drilled in on sloth, and she explained to me that it's derived from a Latin and before that a Greek term called ascetia. So we're put ascetia. Just say ascetia. All right, you learned something. Good job. Ascetia simply meant without care. Ah, ascetia. Ah, without, ascetia, care. It's without care. And so this is the root of sloth. Sloth comes from ascetia. So our modern idea of what, a sloth, what sloth as a, as a sin is just comes from this carelessness. So uh, to paraphrase Dorothy Sayers, we'll put it up here so you can see it. Ascetia means uh, a life driven by a mere cost-benefit analysis of what's in it for me. Tolerance of the world for the sake of self. That perfectly describes the job I was doing. I dealt with whatever I had to deal with so I could get what I needed to get and get out. So we've said surrender is a giving up of the life for self-interest and instead surrendering to God's agenda. This is purely self-interested agenda-seeking. And this is what most of us, if we are not careful, are doing with our days. And yet God's agenda would be what? Seek the lost, love the outsider. This second response of stripping work for meaning leaves us as people devoid of love, except for ourselves. So I tolerate others, but I really love myself. So giving too much meaning, so let's go through, let's just kind of summarize where we're at. Giving too much meaning and the overwork that comes with it is self-centered vanity in that it imagines that somehow the universe needs your productivity, okay? Too much meaning in overwork, it's self-centered vanity. Giving too little meaning in the sloth that it brings is self-centered vanity, in that it imagines that work exists solely to serve your needs. So on either end, we're kind of hosed. How do we avoid these responses? What's the right response? What does it mean to surrender our work, to give it up for God's glory? It does not mean you quit your job, although you can It means you were designed to work, made in God's image, made to work and then rest, and work and then rest. So we start there, work hard, full stop. You were designed to work hard. Work is not bad, work is not evil, work is not here to torture you, work is not here to punish you, you were designed to work. Some of us are allergic to work. I find me on a Saturday. My wife says, you know what? This needs to be fixed. I'll be like, ah, I'm allergic to that work. God says, work hard. That's good. Then rest. Work hard, then rest. Work hard and then quit striving for a minute. So look over your life, sit with God, find gratitude. That's called Sabbath. And then work again. If you're 13, if you're 93, Anywhere in between, 
work. This requires us, though, to, to separate work from pay. So we have to separate work from pay. We have to separate work from reward. And this is the, the key. If you separate your work and your labor from the pay and the reward, whatever that reward structure is, if it's getting an A, if it's retiring well, if it's making money in the middle, whatever it is, if you can separate your work and your labor from the reward that comes with it, now you're on the right track. The Bible is clear that a worker is worth his wage. But you were also designed to be active and creative and reshape the earth and restore hearts, and that's why you're here. Work is hard, but work is good. You were designed for it. This is not a marriage sermon. That's a different day. But some of you need to look at your marriages, your relationship. Some of you need to look at your life as this sort of work. Marriage is hard work, but it's good work if you can get it. Relationships are hard work, but they're good work if you can get it. If you separate your relationship from the reward that it should bring you, or the reward you desire from it, all of a sudden, you can focus solely on the thing that it truly is instead of the thing that it might earn you. Colossians 3. Paul's going to drop wisdom on us. We're going to spend the rest of the morning in Colossians 3. Start in verse 23 and 24, and then we'll back all the way up to verse 1 and tell you why this matters. 23 and 24. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. As working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. So think of your work. Think of the labor of your days. Think of the thing you do. Who are you working for? If you are placing too much importance on work, you're working for what? Your identity and your glory. If you have placed not enough importance on work, you've stripped it of meaning, who are you working for? Well, just you and your reward. This says work for Jesus. You were designed for Jesus to be your boss. Whoever your boss is, whoever you answer to, whoever signs your check, whoever is approving of your day or disapproving of your day, ultimately the Bible says you're actually here to work for Christ. You work as unto the Lord. So if you're biblically surrendered, if you want to live the biblically surrendered life, the true life that God has called you into, the life that actually leads to flourishing and not the endless anxiety and toil promised in Genesis 3, then who's your boss? And you can say you work for Jesus and then you go, well, that's sweet. That's real. Okay, right. Nice church answer. That's cool. But when I leave here, I don't get to call Jesus and ask for the day off tomorrow. Like, that's not how that works. I still have a real boss. I still have an actual thing to do. So what does it actually look like? So great, I'm glad you asked. Starts with your focus and your identity. Verse 1, Colossians 3, verse 1. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, we went through this a couple weeks ago, you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So set your hearts on things above. You are building the kingdom of heaven. You have been given the task and mission of building the kingdom of heaven. God has left us here to become workers, ambassadors in his building of heaven on earth. Jesus said, how do, we, how do we pray, Jesus? And he says, let it be done on earth as it is in heaven. You guys, while you're here, ask for God's favor that you might build earth into a heaven-like place. You died and your identity is now in Jesus. It is no longer I who lives, 
but it's Christ who lives in me. And with a new life, we put away what drives us back to death. So we continue, verse 5. Put to death, therefore. What's the therefore, therefore? It points right backwards. So how are we supposed to do this thing? Well, you start by putting to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. And because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger and malice and slander and rage and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on a new self, which in being renewed is in the knowledge of the image of its creator. So let's, there was two lists there, right? There was two lists. There was the first list, and that list was immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed. The second list, anger, rage, ballast, slander, filthy language. Let's focus on the lists. The first list, lust and greed are cousins. You need to see this. When we hear lust in our culture, we assign lust to one specific area of life. You know what I'm talking about. It's not what, it's, it's not what it means. Lust means over-desire. Now, most often in our culture, we see that in a certain area of our life. So now that it applies there again, but lust is over desire. I lust for a new car. I lust for a new phone. I lust for this meal, fried chicken, usually for me. I lust for fried chicken. I just do. I have an over desire for it. That desire starts to become more than it should be. And now instead of thinking about, you know, I really think I could make a simple a sandwich here and I could get by on my sandwich for my lunch for the day, I go, I really need to go find some fried chicken. That's over-desire. We all have over-desires. And lust and greed are cousins. Over-desire is the cousin of greed. Both are driving you to more than you need and more than you should have, to an unhealthy pursuit of something you don't actually need that much of. Usually wanting a good thing too much is what lust is marked by. It's a good thing. God gave us fried chicken. If I eat it every day for every meal, that's not going to go real well. God gave you to be with a partner to experience true intimacy, to over-desire that is to take it into an unhealthy place. So usually, lust is marked by wanting a good thing too much or in a way that debases rather than glorifies God. Okay? So work invites lust, positional lust, financial lust, and over-desire for things. And so you have to identify places you desire something that is building the kingdom of self because you have not been designed to build the kingdom of self. And note that this greed and this lust, that inspires the second list. So what happens when you don't get everything you always ever wanted? Anger and rage and malice and slander and filthy language enter into the picture. Those, those things don't come from contentment in the Lord. Somebody doesn't go, you know, I'm so grateful for what the Lord has given me today and I'm going to work my day as unto Christ and I'm happy with whatever he should bring and I'll be his ambassador in this place. Also, I'm going to rage out at my boss and I'm going to have slander for my coworker and I'm going to filthy language. You know, like, that's not where that comes from. That comes from when the first list is, is unsatisfied, the second list shows up. Because we're not surrendering, we're clawing for more. Lust and greed drive you to anger and slander. And then anger and slander and rage act as this kind of nasty loop that drive you back into more lust and greed. You know, if I just had, if I was in charge, it wouldn't go like this. I'm gunning for his job now. I'm gunning for her job now. I'll show her. This is what happens when you're convinced that no one has your back but you. A pastor once told me that no one's looking out for you but you. So when you're looking for a job, you just got to worry about you. I was like, man, that's, 
That's interesting. I mean, I don't know if that's biblical. And I find myself repeating it at times and trying to tweak it a little bit and add a little Jesus in there. But I'm like, you know what? That's in the hiring world. Maybe he's right. An HR manager once told me I was, I was uh, interviewing for a job at a Fortune 500 company. And the HR manager had another job offer from a, a large regional bank. And I'm waiting for my offer from the, 500, the Fortune 500 company. And the bank already made a good offer. And he goes, take the bank's job. And if I give you a better offer in three days, quit the bank job and come to me. And I was like, that doesn't seem like really ethical behavior. And he says, they're not looking out for you. You do you. And I was like, you're 73 years old, and you just said you do you. And it was a thing. <laughs> where does that come from? That comes from living in a world where God is not sovereign, where I have to watch out for me because God's not got this covered. Keep moving. I got another secret. I got another thing to tell you. There's no such thing as work-life balance. Uh-oh. <laughs> Millennial exodus right there. Balance is everything. Balance and boundaries. There's no such thing as work-life balance. I'm not saying that an 80-hour work week is healthy. I didn't say that. So don't walk away being like you said, I got to work 80 hours this week. What we have to do is stop pretending that there's a difference between your work and the rest of your life. Those are not two distinct things. It's the same thing in different contexts. So I mean it in this way. There's no work-life balance in the sense that there's no actual wall between your work and your life. When you go to school, you're not someone different than you are at home. When you go to work, you're not someone different than you are at home. You're the same person everywhere. And so you, to, to create, oh, I have a, a balance. That's to create two different sets of self. One self that goes here and has these rules and one self that stays here and has these rules. Your challenge is to be the same you wherever you go. This is how it works to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven as an ambassador of heaven itself. You are designed to be one person, integrated whole, with integrity, integrated, everywhere you go. So you recognize that there is no spiritual work and there is no spiritual worker. Like the work you do on a Sunday morning when you're volunteering in the baby room is not more holy than the work you do on a construction site. There's no such thing as a spiritual worker. My job, my role... My task in the day is not holier than yours. Mine looks different. It's not holier. The holiness imbued in what we do comes from the, the heart from which we do it. I could mail this in all day, and you wouldn't know it. And you can mail in your job all you want, and no one has to know it. If you are working as unto the Lord, that's where the secret is. That's where integrity lies, that I am the same here as I am in my office on a Tuesday afternoon as I am at home on a Saturday morning. The same person. That's the goal for each and every one of us as people surrendering our work is that we are the same person everywhere. Are you the same at the dinner table as you are at work? Are you the same in relational stress as you are when it's calm? Are you the same on vacation as when you're facing a big deadline? Let's wrap this up. How do you work with all your heart as working for the Lord? Colossians 3, 12 through 17. Therefore, this is how you do it, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other, forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and then be thankful that the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all the wisdom through psalms and hymns and the songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him.
That's how you live an integrated life for Christ. That's how your work belongs to Jesus. It's how your home belongs to Jesus. It's that. It applies to a teacher, to a student, to a financial advisor, a factory worker, blue collar, white collar, no collar, doesn't matter. That applies. Surrendering your work means putting away your greed and your over-desire and replacing it with compassion and kindness, with humility and gentleness, with wild, reckless love. In your integrated life, identified in Christ alone on mission, is to love God and love neighbor. When they said, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love the, God, love, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, body, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. All of it's summed up right there. That's what it is. That's your mission. So if you got a tough job with lots of stress, what's your job description? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, body, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. If you're a firefighter, what is your job? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, body, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself while fighting fires. If you're an accountant, it's tax season. I'm sorry. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, body, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself while figuring out Kyle's taxes. If you're a CEO, if you're a plumber, if you're a coach, if you're a stay-at-home dad, if you're a student, whatever you are, your mission is the same. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, body, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself while you go about the work that God has given you for your day. Love God, love neighbor. Know Jesus, make him known. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have given us work. We got work to do. Lord, I pray today that we would be inspired to do that work as unto you. Lord, we need conviction where we've been mailing it in, uh, just cash and checks, or where we have made an idol of what we do and who we are in that job. Father, I pray you would break us of that and remind us that there is joy and peace and flourishing to be found when we release it, when we surrender it to you. Father, find us as your children working for your glory and nothing less. God, give us favor in the places we spend our days that your, uh, your name might be made known through our diligence and through our excellence. God, may your name be known through our witness. But Father, let it be about you in all things. God, we love you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.